0: Well good morning and one welcome one more time to Encounter. My name is Dirk, preaching pastor here at church. And we are in part three of our series right now called Gifted. But before we go into the content of that series, again I want to remind you, next Sunday, if you come here on Sunday morning, there's not gonna to be too many other people around. So you wanna make sure to adjust your calendar. We're coming to church 4 30 and 6 p.m. next Sunday to celebrate Christmas Eve. We've got all kinds of special events, special things planned for the Christmas Eve worship experiences. So you're going to want to make sure to be here. Make sure also to invite your friends, neighbors, family members, people that you work with, even people, as Jackie said in the video, who don't tend to go to church. They might come with you. They might at least welcome, they will welcome um, the, the invitation this Christmas season. <clears throat> uh, okay, as we move into this series here, um, we, we want to kind of um, acknowledge something. Uh, on, the, on the table, I brought with me what we're talking about today is, is bad gifts, I brought with, with us here a bad gift. Um, this is, uh, as you can see, it's wrapped in newspaper, which indicates you know it's not going to be a great present. Uh, more than that, what you can't see is this is actually the opinion section of the local paper. So just, it, it highlights just like, this is not going to be a good experience. It's, it's wrapped, it's held together with duct tape because... No attention has been paid to the aesthetic value whatsoever. The, the edges, the sides are all dented in and crinkled because whatever was here, if it was uh, in, in one piece earlier, it probably isn't anymore. The reason is because it is a bad gift. It's the kind of gift that really nobody wants to receive. And if I could be honest with most of you, I want to tell you that I'm kind of sort of the king of the bad gifts. I'm not, I'm not a good gift giver. Those of you who maybe have received gifts from me, you, you understand this to be true. If you've ever thought to yourself, um, like, like who is that person that like gives his wife a vacuum cleaner for their birthday? That's me. I like, but it, it was a Dyson though. And those things are expensive. A, I have a sense that I might be doing most of the vacuuming from here on out. But while we're on that topic though, just to kind of highlight just how much of a hole I tend to dig myself in. I, we share an Amazon account which means that I can kind of creep on what uh, Chris and my wife's like, past browsing history is. And so that gives me like, an, an, an idea and a lead on what a good gift would be. Pro tip, maybe check that one in. Check that one out. Hack into you know, your significant other's um, Amazon history. And you can might find a pretty good gift-giving idea on that one. In this case, um, how she almost ended up with receiving a treadmill for Christmas. I thought it was great. It was in my cart at one point. Honey, don't worry, though. I did not give... Guys, do not give your wife... A treadmill for Christmas. It's just, it's not a good idea. It's a bad, bad gift idea. I can see some, some discomfort, some smirks out there, and, and that's okay. It's okay to acknowledge kind of poking each other because you know of the two, which one of you is, is a better gift giver and which one is a, is a worse gift giver. And that's, that's all right to kind of get that out there. But this Christmas season, what we want to, what we want to acknowledge is that many of us are probably going to receive bad gifts. Now maybe like me, the the bad gifts that you receive are are gonna edge on something that's that, that's too practical, right? Uh, you, you know it's it. it I guess it works, but you know, maybe we should just probably forego all small kitchen appliances this Christmas because they're just like too. it doesn't, it's not significant, it's not special enough. I realize what I'm doing is I'm popping holes in like all of these gifts just before Christmas, and this is dangerous, so I apologize for that. Uh, we're going somewhere though. Other ways of giving bad gifts are maybe gifts that uh, are just too generic, right? Uh, too, they don't say anything significant, anything special about the person that, that you're giving them to. It's like a, a, a Visa gift card or like a Speedway gas station. Like everybody loves a Slurpee, but it doesn't make it a good gift. These are all probably bad gift ideas. Other things is just when you frankly cheap out, you know, there's a 20, $30 gift limit on the exchange and, uh, and you show up spending a buck or five, you know, you just cheaped out. By the way, for those of you <clears throat> Everybody knows that those like Hershey's Potto Gold chocolate boxes, you know what I'm talking about? Everybody knows that those are buy one get one free in Christmas. Like all year, that they don't sell them for normal price. They're all BOGO. Okay? So when you show up to the gift exchange with just one box of chocolate, like everybody knows you either ate the other one or it's still in your car. Those are it's a bad <laughs> gift to give this Christmas season. That's what we're talking. We're talking about bad gifts. But no matter how bad Your gifts, either you give, hopefully not, or receive. I don't think any of them are gonna come close. They're gonna be able to hold a candle to the bad gifts that we see as our third installment of the series of gifted. Remember, we're looking through the gifts of the the magi, the gifts of the wise men, as they're sometimes called, and we're gonna pick up that story in Matthew chapter two, verse eleven, just as a reminder of kind of don't forget, this is part three of the three part series Gifted, um, where we read that That then they, that's the wise men, the Magi, opened up their treasures and presented him, that's Jesus, toddler Jesus, along with his family, with gifts of gold. That's a good gift. That's always a good gift. In case you're still looking for something, that's been a good gift apparently for at least 2,000 years. Gold is a good thing to give and receive. Uh, Gifts of gold, frankincense, that's weird, remember. Uh, but, But don't forget, if you were here last week... It costs twice as much as gold per ounce. So, that alone makes it a pretty decent gift. And myrrh. And that's where it takes kind of a weird turn towards the bad gift giving and receiving experience. Myrrh is a weird gift to give. Myrrh is a, it's, it's a scent, but it's, its significance isn't so much in how good it smells, but how powerfully it smells. So think in your mind less of uh, perfume or cologne and think for yourself more along the lines of deodorant, right? It's something that, that, that masks the odor, that masks the scent that's already there. So with that kind of in mind, the best use for myrrh when they were giving and receiving this gift a couple of thousand years ago, the most common use that it was for is masking powerful aromas, namely bodies. Dead bodies, people that died when they were putting them into tombs and into the grave they did wrap them up with with uh, strips of linen soaked in in myrrh because it was so powerful of a scent, not that it was just good but but it was powerful. It would mask it would cover up the scent of a of a decomposing body, which is important because if tombs were shared you 'd have to come in and out and in and out, and so you, you wanted something in that room to try to cover all that up. And so if you're thinking to yourself, I think I might be the world champion of bad gift givers, or if you're thinking Dirk on stage is the world champion of being bad gift givers, none of us, none of us could ever compete with these guys who show up bringing a a funeral embalming spice to a baby shower to celebrate Jesus. That's, it's a bad gift gift experience. But as we're going to see, and as I hope we all see together, I think God was up to something. You know, and this is a bit tangential, but I think it's worth also pointing out that just because we don't understand something doesn't mean that God isn't up to something. And so, and so God has these wise men, these magi, show up with these gifts. Not at all because they're clever. Not at all because They know what to bring, not at all because they understand the significance of this toddler they came to visit. No, no, no. They had no idea how could they, but I think God, all in the background, has been working to bring this whole thing to a place, to bring this whole thing together, to show us something incredibly powerful. This morning we're connecting these dots as they relate to that bad gift of myrrh. And so I want to go to a place in the Bible, go to a place in John where Myrrh shows up again. And I think it's significant because Myrrh shows up at Jesus' birth and now in the the story that John tells in John chapter 19, Myrrh shows up in his death. By the way, there's Bibles under the chairs uh, in front of you if you want to follow along. There's a page number in the program. Um, Also, the words are going to be on the screen behind me. Now we're just, it's four verses long. So what I'd love to do is to just kind of buckle down and have that attention span to just listen to the story as it's told, all four verses. It starts off with this. John 19, soon after his crucifixion, um, Jesus' crucifixion, verse 38. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now Joseph was a, was a disciple of Jesus, but, but secretly. Because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who had earlier visited Jesus at night. It's important. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh, that's why Dirk is talking about this, and aloes with about 75 pounds. So taking Jesus' body, the two of them, this is Joe and Nick now, they they wrapped it with spices in strips of linen. This was in accordance with the Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was the Jewish day of Passover preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. As I said, This is picked because myrrh, significantly, is is present in Jesus, the beginning of Jesus' life at his birth, and it's present also. It pops up again immediately following Jesus' death. Now, what's, what's striking me about this is that As we kind of like put some of this stuff together, I had this tension um, earlier this week, and I was thinking like, how am I going to kind of communicate this? How am I going to like, you know, make this as um, as compelling as I possibly can? And sometimes I try to like be clever, and it works, you know, like 60% of the time it works every time. And I come across this time, you know, it's this tension between trying to be clever and trying to be clear. And I thought this is so important. I don't want us to miss this, right? Because we're not. we're not talking, that, we're not preaching here for Sunday. We're preaching for Monday and for on into the rest of the week. So I want this to land and I want this to be just as, as clear as it can possibly be. And that means that like all the tension is kind of going to get resolved out of this thing. So I hope that you'll stick with it because I, I think it's going to go someplace pretty cool a little bit later on. I, I hope so at least. Um, but, but I want to just tell you the point that I hope that you'll walk away from today. And I want to tell you that when we talk about bad gifts, we're talking about myrrh myrrh as a bad gift. We're talking about uh, 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 vacuums and treadmills as, as bad gifts. But I want to be super clear now and to tell you that I think Jesus, connecting his birth and death, Jesus as a Savior, is a bad, bad gift. What I mean by that is that when we think of the gift of Jesus at his Savior, the significance of Christmas is that Jesus would later die. Not just that he came to live, but that he would come and die for each and every one of us that would believe in him and, and trust him. And, and so, Jesus, we call him a Savior. And when we say that Jesus is the gift of a Savior, what I mean is it's a bad gift because I think if we're honest, none of us really want to be saved from something. I like think we want to do it on our own. We want to be the we want to be the, the 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 masters of our faith, the captains of our souls. We want to we want to figure it out ourselves, right? And and when we accept the gift of a savior, what we're in a sense accepting is an admonition an admission that we can't save ourselves, that we need help. So it's, it's like this, if you show up to a Christmas party every Christmas party. You've got a work party, an in-laws party, extended family party, and your own personal Christmas party. You might have a few more on top of that. But you show up to every single Christmas party and at every one there's a secret Santa or there's a stock stocking or something um, th- where, where you get these little gifts. And, and imagine this. And if every single one of them, you open up the stocking or you open up the Se- secret Santa thing and, and inside there's a case of breath mints. <laughs> and by the third or fourth one, you're starting to realize like, I don't think this was a coincidence, right? And I don't think everybody got together and decided we should get him breath mints. No, no. pretty soon what you start to realize through all all of that is that I think I just am a person with bad breath, right? Because, and everybody else realizes that, and so they're, they're giving me this thing. And what makes it a bad gift isn't so much that It wasn't thoughtful. Oh, no, 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 just the opposite. It was too thoughtful, right? It landed. But to accept that gift, it's almost in a sense like we have to accept that there is something wrong, that there is something deficient about us, right? Or you can up the ante a little bit more on top of that. If you've got a friend, close friend, somebody who knows you better than everybody, and they know they know that you have just, like, a terrible diet or something, right? Like, late night pizza and candy, and it sounds amazing, I know. But, but like, they know that this is you. And so they end up, like, giving you for Christmas or birthday or, or something the, the remarkably bad gift of, of, like, you know, healthy eating recipes connected to, like, a, you know, guide to healthy cooking book. And you're like, ah, oh. It's the worst gift, not because it wasn't thoughtful, but just the opposite, just so much. But truly, like accepting that gift, you have to accept something about yourself that your friend is calling out that you don't necessarily want to accept. I think the worst, the worst one that I can think of is, is probably when somebody who knows you and who knows what you're going through. He knows, especially now, that things have been tight, that things have been hard. And so the friend or the family member or something, they sit you down and they say, we've got a gift for you because I know that you've been struggling lately. And they slide a, an envelope with a check across the table. It's a financial gift. And they say, because we want to help you out, please, would you accept this? And you know, you know that to accept a gift also comes with some kind of admission that I got myself into this mess or I didn't prevent this mess from hitting me hard or there's something about the situation that I'm in that I cannot get myself out on my own and so I need help and you accept that gift. And so this morning I want to tell you that that Jesus as the gift of a savior is kind of like that, that, that awkward bad gift that when you accept him as a savior, what you're doing is you're accepting that you cannot do this on your own. You cannot be, I cannot be a good person on my own. I cannot be a moral human being on my own. I cannot get myself out of the hole that I continually dig myself in on my my own i need help i need someone else to come in and to rescue me from that in fact when we say that we accept the gift of jesus as savior essentially what we're doing is we're accepting one simple fact that god it would be better if i were not in charge of my life but that you were in fact in charge of my life and if that isn't a hard truth for you to come to terms with and to say i if that's easy, if you're like, yeah, sure. I mean, totally. I don't think we've done the real hard work of, of truly accepting that gift because I think in our heart of hearts, each one of us, we want to maintain control and we find all of these different ways of manufacturing control in our lives, in our hearts, even in our spiritual lives as well. Now, two guys that we just read about, I think did this perfectly for a long, long time. Joseph of Arimathea and also Nicodemus, as the story told us. Now, these are, these were interesting guys because in these uh, four verses, like they don't pop up a lot of other places, even though they're really significant people. Um, Joseph of Arimathea, and they both have a couple of strong things in common. I'll just tell you, they they both have like this religious system in common. Joseph of Arimathea is actually, uh, he's a guy who's he's in the the Jewish ruling uh, council, it's called the Sanhedrin. Um, They're, in fact, the group that made the call, made the final decision to pursue arresting Jesus and having him crucified. I just, I just think that's incredible that now the guy asking for his body was, was in the room when they, made, when they made the decision and they all voted on whether or not they were going to crucify Jesus. Now, the other gospels, they tell us that Joseph of Arimathea is a good guy, righteous guy. He didn't go along with it. He didn't put his hand up. But still, he was right there in the room when the decision was made to crucify Jesus. Because when it comes to religion, friends, like this guy, he was an expert. And then there's Nicodemus. Nicodemus, um, he shows up a little bit more often. Joseph, Joe, we don't see him too often. In fact, we don't see him at all until he shows up right after they take Jesus' body down. That's when Joseph of Arimathea comes up, which I think is just kind of an interesting side point because um, nobody in the Gospels mentions him at all. And then all of a sudden, all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all mention Joseph of Arimathea. And I think that's significant because remember, the Bible was written while a lot of these people were still alive, right? And so it's writing to people and saying, listen, like, if you don't believe me, go, go to the tomb. If, if you don't believe me, find Joseph of Arimathea. Find that guy, and ask him where the body of Jesus is, right? Because it's, it's his tomb. He'll tell you the whole story. So all four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, they point out, you gotta talk to this Joseph of Arimathea guy. Now that's, that's Joe. There's also Nicodemus, also a super religious guy. Um, John, in fact, same place where this story comes from. Early on in, in the Jesus story, according to John, he says, Nicodemus was someone who came to Jesus under the cover of darkness. Right? He he's doing what he is doing in secret because because Jesus loved to beat up on the uppity religious types right? Jesus loved to make examples out of what was called in his day as Pharisees. Jesus loved to call out the guys that, that were worshiping God with their lips, but their hearts were far from God. Jesus loved to, to really just shamelessly embarrass the, the, the people who are, who are kind of hollow on the inside. Jesus loved to call out the religious hypocrites and the religious liars. And Nicodemus was one of those. He was one of the Pharisees. And he starts to hear about some of these miracles that Jesus is up to, and so he wants to know more, and so he goes to learn more. He goes to Jesus under the cover of darkness, and he goes, I've got some questions for you. Could you you tell me a few things? First of all, I'm wondering, how is it that I can be saved? Which is such a powerful, such a good question, right? I mean, and, and Jesus answers him, and he goes, Nicodemus, it's, it's almost like you have to be born again. And Nicodemus is like, you've got to be kidding me. I'm a grown man, for crying out loud. How am I going to be born again? And, and, and Jesus goes, no, no, no. It's not physically, but it's like you have to experience this, this spiritual rebirth now, now we do that in terms of baptism, right? Where it's like you were going down this road, now you're going down this road. Like two people emailed me this week earlier about getting baptized. It's super exciting, but but like that's what that means. It means about, I, mean, so I was going here and I was heading here. I'm experiencing this this like spiritual rebirth. But for for Nicodemus, right? it's confusing. For for Nicodemus, he's going. I don't I don't know about this, and so he walks away. But he doesn't leave. Right? Like that night, he, he kind of walked out, but he stayed around. And so what I think is so interesting about these two guys, Joe and Nick, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, what's so interesting, these two guys, is that, is that they're both so completely steeped in the religious traditions and in the religious system. And when I talk about we make up all of these different ways. We manufacture all of these different ways to to try to convince ourselves that, that, that we're fundamentally decent people and we don't need to be rescued by a Savior. What I mean is... One of the significant ways that we do that is by doing exactly what Joe and exactly what Nick did in creating and being part of these religious systems so that so that God and spirituality and, and my faith walk it boils down to you know a set of religious principles or, or spiritual truths and, and as long as I, as long as I abide by these different these different posts in the ground as long as I follow these different rules like like I can make my way to God and like every kind of world religion around like 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 pours into them and says yes I mean God as you understand him I mean if it's God if it's Yahweh it's, it's Allah if you follow the the Quran the Bhagavad Gita I'm pronouncing that wrong if you follow the book of Mormon like whatever the religious text is if you follow the rules you can make your way into at heaven or nirvana or the good place or like whatever the deal is like you can get there on and then jesus steps in and says no, no no i am not your religion to enable you to to power you up to give you the boost to get there i am not your religion it's far worse and far better than that i am your savior And I came to rescue you from that. And he did. And they were changed. They were so incredibly changed. And I want to know, like, like what was it that, that, that moved them? What was it that changed them? Right? Because after Jesus was crucified, after he died, They took him down from the cross, and they were going to put him into a mass tomb with all the other murderers and thieves, all the other people that were crucified earlier that day and earlier that month, and they were just going to put him in the mass grave like they do for everybody, except, except Joe went before the governor. He went before Pilate, as it says, and he asked for the body of Jesus that is so incredible in fact when mark the jesus story according to our mark when he's telling the story mark doesn't says he just mark doesn't say he went to the governor to ask for the body he says no, no 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 it was more than that he took courage my heart and he went before the the governor Pilate to ask for the body because that's what it takes is courage to now not secretly but publicly identify yourself as a follower of jesus get this friends get this After Jesus died, all of the disciples, they fled. They hightailed it. They got out there. I'm talking Peter denying Jesus three times. James, John, like the favorites, the inner circle. Everybody got out of there, and nobody is around to see what happens to the body of Jesus except these two guys. And one of them, Joe, asks for the body to be his. Now get this. Every other disciple could just pretend that they never knew Jesus. Peter did it three times. Every other disciple could hightail it, could run. They weren't physically attached to Jesus in any way. They could just start over, start a whole new life. But, but, not, but not Joe, right? Because, because Joe, he goes before Pilate and he says, I want his body. And the significance is that when the crackdown started on the Jesus movement, and it already did start, with Jesus' own crucifixion. When they started cracking down on the followers of Jesus, all of the other disciples could have been hiding in the wind, but now Joe would be left here with the body of Jesus. And so everybody would know he is a Jesus follower. He is the one that took on the body of Jesus when he didn't have to and when no one else would. What I'm just simply saying is that Joe had an experience that moved him and impassioned him and gave him the courage to stand up and ask Pilate, the governor, for the body. And Nicodemus shows up to the tomb, meeting Joseph of Arimathea that day. Shows up not empty-handed. No, you heard it. He shows up with 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes, spices that he's going to take now to honor Jesus' body, to honor his life now in death. That is a truckload of spices. And you're thinking like 75, 75 pounds of anything is kind of a lot. But now he shows up with this. He's probably not even alone. He's probably got like servants, people that he's hired to help him just physically carry it all into the tomb where they're going be, to be doing these preparations. And the point that Nicodemus is making is you're exactly right. That is a bit much. That is a bit excessive. They didn't use that much myrrh to, to, to soak people in, to, to cover up the stench of their decomposing body. It wasn't normal in those times, but it was normal for a king. It was normal for a king. In fact, the tradition shows us that that the amount of spices and myrrh that was used in death was meant as a reflection of the person's life. When Nicodemus shows up that day with 75 pounds, what he's saying is, friends, this man was a king, and we're going to honor him. As such, because I want everybody to know everybody who walks into this tomb after us, the next person that's buried, when they carry that man down these few steps and roll, away, roll open this, this stone and come into this tomb, they're going to be smacked with the aroma of a king buried right here in this place. And I will give it my all to make sure that that happens. And I don't know what moved him. What moved these two guys from, from, from indifference, from, from being a secret disciple of Jesus, not quite ready to stand up and speak up. What moved these two guys from, from, from going to Jesus, but, but only at night when nobody was watching to being the only two guys that are there taking care of Jesus' body. And the only thing that I come up with is the cross. The cross moved them. May the cross move you this week. In Christmas time, but all the time. May we honor Jesus' life, but, but also, too, point towards the significance of him becoming a man was that he would give that up, give up life in death to be our Savior. You see, as horrible as it is, as awful as it is to think about, is that the pain of the cross was what moved them to the love of God. Pain has a way of doing that, doesn't it? loss has a way of doing that, doesn't it? The, the bad gift today is the gift of a savior. We don't want to admit that we need a savior. That makes it a, a, a bad gift. But, but the, the bad gift is also the gift of pain, the gift of loss, the gift of suffering, the gift of trial, the gift of struggle. You know, I say that with, with fear, fear, as well, because I know that there's stories of loss, there's stories of hardship, there's stories of struggle here in the room, and we don't want to think about that as a gift. Far from it. It's a curse. I don't want anything. But I know your stories, and I've walked with you through many of them. And, and I know what we say here around here rather often is that, is that you cannot stay indifferent in that place. So, so gird your, steal your heart now because when the pain comes, you will not stay as a secret disciple or as an undercover Christian for very long. When the suffering or the, or the loss comes, you will, be, you will be moved. Everybody is moved. When the heat is turned up, you will be either moved into a place of, of loathing and, and hatred at the very thought of God, or or you will be moved as so many of you are and as so many of you have been over the last year or five, when the heat was turned up and when the pain became intense, you found yourself being, being moved, in fact, being more than that, being driven deeper into the love of God than you ever thought imaginable before. The gift of pain has a way of doing that. When it comes, we will recognize it as something unnatural, as something not part of the good, perfect, given creation that we have, but we also, may we not waste it. May we allow it to drive us, as it did for Joe and Nick, deeper into the love of God than we ever thought imaginable. Our friends, I want to leave you with good news, because this story is a story of good news. In fact, gospel literally means good news. And so I want to I want to point out that in the entire gospel of John, the story of Jesus according to John, Jesus was dead for just four verses, 20 something chapters, hundreds and hundreds of verses. And Jesus is dead for just four of them. And you just heard them, all of them. Those are all of the stories in John where Jesus is dead. And it's, it's Joe and it's Nick who show up in that place. And the, and the good news that I want to offer them and the good news to any one of us walking through a valley, going through a struggle, seeing a trial, the good news that I want to offer you is you may be in a season right now where the heat has turned up and the pain is intense and you don't want this bad gift in front of you. But it's four verses. And there's still more to come. You see, Joe and Nick, they were experiencing the life of Jesus, and then the death of Jesus. And they thought that was it. They thought that was the, the period, the full stop, the ending of the Jesus story. But what they mistook as a period was actually a comma because there was more story yet to come. You know, when you're in seventh grade and you learn about, and you learn about some basic grammar things, you learn uh, you learn periods first, you know, see Dick run, see Jane walk. You, whatever it is, I don't know. I didn't learn that lesson. You, you, you learn sentences first, and you, you learn that the period is the way to end them well. Something happens, and then it's done. And chances are the, the very first punctuation that you learned after that one was probably a comma, you probably learned that a comma indicates something like the story is, the sentence is, is yet to be completed. It's yet to be finished. There's more yet. And so in a sense, it's not technically right, but we all kind of learned it the same way. When we come to a period, it's, it's almost like we can go back to that place and to, and to hear our teacher and instructor tell us to pause, reader, because there's more to come. In fact, because the best is yet to come in the sentence and if i could go to joseph of arimathea and if i could go to nicodemus these secret disciples of jesus that that were moved out of indifference into passion and they were thinking that even in their passion, they were, they, were, they were thinking that Jesus' life was over. The sentence had come to an end. Jesus was laid there in the tomb, period. And I want to tell these guys, no, 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 it's not a period. The life of Jesus goes on. Pause, reader. The best is yet to come. Because in just a moment, some women are going to come to this tomb to to put even more oils and scents to even further honor the king that lays here. Except they're not going to find a man buried in a tomb there that day. What they're they're going to find is an angel sitting there and asking the question, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. The period was a comma all along. And the best is yet to come. Go out there and find him and for those of you in the valley those of you at Christmas experiencing loss and pain take a breath pause and tell yourself that the best is still yet to come It's a good story that God is telling with your life. It's a good story and there may be some awful parts to it, but it's good. And I think what he might be telling you this Christmas with this gift of a savior and he wants to say, don't give up, don't give in, don't quit on faith, don't give up on God. Whoever you are and you are here as a last resort and this is, your, this is your last effort Sunday because you want God to show up now because you're just about to quit. I want to tell you, don't give up. Don't get in. Don't give in. Don't quit faith because the best is yet to come. And I want to tell you something that Joe and something that Nick got in that moment because it takes death to see a resurrection. It takes pain to see progress. It takes a trial to get a testimony. It takes, it takes a hurt to experience later on the miraculous healing of God. It takes, it takes incredible and profound struggle for you to come up with a story worth sharing. Whatever your hurt, whatever your pain, whatever your sorrow, whatever your grief, whatever valley of the shadow of death, you may be walking through today and in this moment, take a breath. Reader,